This is The Uprising, starring Steve Alquist. I'm your host, Greg Brailsford. Today, we discuss the latest bills at the State House, a small victory on Medicare for All, and a conversation with Dr. Mark Ryan on single-payer and the health insurance industry. Welcome to The Uprising, everyone. Steve, another super busy week for you at the State House. It was a crazy week. Very, very long meetings. Last night's HHS meeting, Health and Human Services, went on over five hours. There was a House Judiciary meeting that went on for four and a half hours that took up some important bills this week. Um, these super long meetings are kind of a problem in a way. It's uh, both technical because they have, everybody has to call in. And it's also scheduling because they put so many bills or so many big bills on the same, on the same schedule. For instance, if we look at the uh, ITT Twin River merger bills that are in, it's the only bill being considered by the two committees, finance on the Senate and finance in the House. The House uh, hearing went on for about three and a half hours because they knew this was going to be a huge bill and yeah. it was going to have a lot of people going back and forth on it, right? But when they have a bill like um, the, uh, the single payer last night, the single payer bills, they should have known these were going to be huge bills. And yeah, they only had four bills on the schedule, but it was going to be huge. They could have taken each of these bills in, in turn and may turn it into a much shorter meetings, I think. Yeah, perhaps, yep. But get ready, because eventually we're going to have bills like uh, um, the gun bills are going to come up or some of the abortion bills are going to be coming up. Right. And when those come up, there's going to be hundreds of people on both sides arguing for them. Those are going to be extremely long meetings on video, on television, doing it the way we're doing it right now. So we're going to be in, we're in store for a lot bigger, longer, tougher meetings. Well, I mean, that's good. Does that mean that things are, are progressing? There's actually progress and we're not just, you know, holding all these bills for study and nothing's being done? Yeah, you know, it's hard to say that, right? Um, in the past, the Senate might pass a bill and the House will stop it. Or the House might pass a bill and the Senate doesn't take it up. And so some good bills like uh, fair pay for women, right, got killed. The Senate passed it. Yeah, we love this bill. Goes to the House and they just rewrite it, turn it into crap and pass a terrible version that has no chance of reconciliation or getting to the governor's desk. Um, other bills have already been telegraphed from the new McKee administration, right? He was, uh, became governor this week, um, have already been said they're not going to happen. He's basically said, we're not going to raise taxes on the rich. That's, a, that's already dead in the water because no matter how we do it, it's not going to happen now. Yeah. And, and honestly, McKee's not for that. You know, he's, uh, I think he's a, uh, Democrat through and through and the, the new neo democratic party, um, is for rich people. I mean, it is. I right. mean, that's we, there's some progressives in the party, but um, you know, as we've tried to illustrate week after week, um, the Democratic Party, especially on the national level, is is for rich people. It's for mm -hmm. rich people who are quote unquote woke. <laughs> like if well, you're for LGBT rights and you're rich, the Democratic Party's for you. Um, but if you want to help people, there there is no party for that. Yeah, so, I think McKee's quote. I don't have it exactly in front of me, but he said that we're going to. Uh, not raise taxes on the rich, and we're going to continue with the car tax phase out, and I think people will be happy. And my first thought was, yeah, rich people will be happy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the car tax is, is the biggest, one of the biggest, not the tax itself, but the removal of the car tax was the biggest scam that Nick Mattiello perpetrated on the on Rhode Island people. Um, the, the car tax benefits people without money far more than it benefits people with money. So removing the car tax, you know, people are like, yeah, yeah, I don't have to pay, what is it, like, a hundred, two hundred bucks a year. I mean, if you're paying more than that, you're driving a pretty nice car. So shut up about the tax, right? <laughs> I mean, it's one or the other. If you're paying a lot for your car tax, where it's actually a meaningful deduction to your your household income, then guess what? You can afford the car. You can afford the tax. The tax isn't a lot of money. All right, let's let's be honest here. Right. I'm embarrassed when I get my tax bill. Okay, my car is 
worth more than fifty thousand. We'll say that. And when I get my tax bill every year, I'm like, this is it? This is this is the tax bill? Okay. So when you look at people that drive, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollar cars, it's like, you're complaining about that? That's really strange. I agree. So we have on our first guest today, Dr. J. Mark Ryan. He is a single payer expert and with single payer and Medicare for all in the news lately, I think it would be a great uh, we thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk to someone that's an expert on this sort of thing and, and discuss the bills at the state house and everything else that's going on in the world of Medicare for all. So, uh, so here's our guest, Mark Ryan. Mark, how are you? Hi. How are you doing, doctor? Uh, I'm. Uh, <laughs> well, how is anybody doing during the midst of an epidemic? I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, doing as well as can be expected. How about you, Steve? Um, good. Are you busy during the pandemic? Uh, do you deal with COVID at all, uh, or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're busy anyway for right. various reasons. But yeah, the epidemic uh, just has a sort of a um, well. Since I don't work in the hospital, it's not, it's not quite as dire as people have to work, uh, like in the emergency room, the intensive care units, and whatnot. Those people are really getting hammered. Sure. Uh, the rest of us are basically signed up to back them up in case they, you know, get sick and are just are temporarily, you know, taken out of action. But um, it's it's just you know it just had a certain amount of chaos to what we normally do. Right. So the reason we had you on this morning was not necessarily just because you're a doctor, but because you're also one of the leaders of the group uh, Physicians for a National Health Care Plan. Right. right. PNHP Physicians right. for a National Health Program. Yeah. There's a chapter in every state, and for whatever reason, I'm the uh, chair of the uh, Rhode Island chapter. Great. And uh, so last night um, in the Senate was a pretty big night for uh, um, single payer Medicare for all. So do you want to talk about what some of your impressions of how the meeting went last night? Um, It was uh, (laughs) I I don't know. It it, it was just it went so much better than I thought it was going to. Uh, We've we've been introducing single payer legislation of various kinds into our state legislature for about the last five years. And uh, the first time we did this uh, several years ago, um, Jeanine Kalkin was sponsoring us in the Senate and Aaron Regenberg in the House. Um, I think we had a grand total of three people uh, testifying as to how necessary this was. Last night, the testimony for the four bills that were heard in the Senate uh, went on for five and a half hours. And there were almost 100 people testified. Doctors, there were people from the community, there were mental health workers. Um, the stories that people told were absolutely heartbreaking, but just the difference, the, I think the greater, the, the incredibly increased awareness as to how necessary this is. It's just night and day. It, just, it was really amazing. And uh, so, and, and last night we did in fact get one of those bills out of committee. Um, can you talk about like a little bit about how you saw that happening? Well, it's interesting. I, I think, um, yeah, so the, the, the bills that were heard last night uh, and the one that got out of committee was a resolution to urge our federal delegation to work actively to try to get a Medicare for all single payer national health insurance program passed at a national level. I mean, it's, it's really if you're going to do this, it makes the most sense to do it uh, nationally. Mm-hmm. And so that it was a resolution to urge our delegation to do that. And uh, right now, uh, three of our four federal uh, legislators have already signed on as sponsors. Senator Whitehouse, Congressman Cicilline, and Congressman Langevin have all signed on, uh, you know, more than a year ago as sponsors of single-payer Medicare for All bills uh, in Congress. 
Uh, the only holdout has been Senator Reid. We've talked about it with him in his office several times, and he's always said, you know, the country isn't ready for it. It's too ambitious. Um, you know, the Affordable Care Act is working uh, well, so why don't we just stick with that? Um, <laughs> so we've, you know, we've been trying to uh, convince him that, in fact, the ACA is a great uh, Band-Aid, but, you know, if your ship goes down in the middle of the Atlantic, it definitely keeps people alive if you throw them a life preserver. But you better send another ship to pick them up because that life preserver is not going to keep them alive very long. So the ACA is kind of like a, like that life preserver. It's a great first step. It's got a lot of people insured, but it's not sustainable. Uh, it's going to fail, and it already is. In the last uh, three years alone, another three million people have lost their insurance. So now we're beginning to lose some of the gains that we've seen in insurance rates under the ACA. And the reason why that is, of course, is that the ACA hasn't really changed things fundamentally. It's thrown money into a system that doesn't work. Right. We should have, you know, we, it, it, it basically the ACA is a means by which people who previously could not afford to buy private health insurance are given some extra money so that they can buy it. The problem being the insurance, the cost of insurance premiums keeps going up and up and up and up. Yep. And every year, they, you know, a certain percentage of the population can no longer afford it. So, you know, this, I think, was probably, um, you know, one of the, you know, it's certainly an important bill to pass, but it doesn't spend money. All it does is encourage our federal delegates to try to get this done. So I think it was a reasonable thing to ask the legislature to do. And I was amazed. Um, It was sort of um, kind of a uh, a domino kind of thing uh, because, you know, Senator Presley, Senator Golden, once people started voting for it, uh, I think it became easier for the other members of the committee to vote for it because they knew they weren't uh, they weren't the only ones who were doing this. So it uh, passed, I think, seven to one, if I remember correctly. Um, but again, after five and a half hours of testimony, you would think, you know, and 100, over 100, almost 100 people speaking, you would think, uh, yeah, that shows that there's a pretty strong level of support for this. You know, when we were just three of us advocating it a few years ago, you know, I think the senators could rightly say, well, this is just a small group of people who want to have this done. And that's nice of them. But but when you have almost 100 people showing up for a Senate hearing uh, to testify and the testimony was quite heartfelt and fact based and it was just it was overwhelming. I, I you know, I'm glad to see that the uh, you know, even without Senate leadership uh, backing this initiative, that the senators just heard what people had to say and they responded to it. And I think that that was huge. I think that, um, Mark, the, uh, the other thing, too, that, that a lot of people may not understand, especially if they never, ever go to the doctor, never actually need to use the health insurance they, they claim they love, is that you know, health insurance itself is, is kind of a scam. You know, it's not just the fact that, you know, not everyone can afford insurance, but the people that can afford insurance, I have insurance, um, and, and I'm scammed every single time I put a claim in. Every time they try to deny coverage one time, this is true, they told me that I had coverage with a different insurance provider, and I had this coverage for 20 years, and they just made it up, like literally just made it up from thin air. I didn't have other insurance. They just didn't want to pay the claim. So I think that people need to understand, too, with Medicare for All is that you're not just giving everyone insurance. You're getting rid of this scam that is the current health insurance industry. Like, what is your perspective from a doctor's point of view? Um, All I could say is you're absolutely right. That is exactly what's going on here. Um, The private private insurance, the reason why costs keep rising faster uh, than it 
you know, is going up in any other country. We are now spending a higher percentage of our GDP on our healthcare system than any other industrialized country. Per capita, we spend double what any other country other than Germany or Switzerland does, despite which we still, you know, at the at before the COVID epidemic, uh, we had 30 million people uninsured. Now I think the number is up closer to 50 million. But um, the, uh, uh, you know, the premiums keep going up. This year alone, for instance, uh, you know, there was a New York Times article, I think last August, that showed that during the epidemic, the profit, um, uh, the profitability of insurance companies, their profit margin has risen. I think United Healthcare rose nearly 100%. Um, some of the other ones rose to a lesser degree. To, uh, and during that same period of time, um, providers of care, and I will use our local hospitals as a good example, have seen uh, a gigantic fall in their income. That's one of the reasons why, um, you know, Lifespan and Care New England are being forced into each other's arms. Uh, they just can't make ends meet. So in a year where the insurance industry as a whole is recording record profits and the providers of care are having such a difficult time uh, staying afloat, the insurance companies in this state still went and petitioned the Office of Health Insurance Commissioner to be able, allowed to raise their rates flat next year and they were given permission to do that. So, you know, it just, it is, you know, I think that one, uh, that one uh, example is pretty clear evidence that uh, private insurance companies, including not-for-profit ones like Blue Cross, are primarily concerned with their own financial well-being, and it's not really their job to make sure that people get care or that people get effective care or that people get any care. Right. Their job is to remain financially solvent, and they work very aggressively towards that end. Uh, the for-profit companies, in fact, have an, uh, an incentive to make healthcare more expensive uh, because when they do so, um, they can raise. They can. They, they are justified in raising their rate. When they raise their rate, that means that their income increases, which means that their stock price increases. So, private health insurance, for-profit insurance companies, actually have a financial incentive to make sure that the healthcare that Americans receive is more expensive, not less expensive. Uh, and as far as the stuff that they do, you know, the, the scams, uh, as you say, I mean, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, 30 years ago when I was a, a resident, you know, you ordered a test and it got done. That doesn't happen anymore. Now you order a test immediately. The insurance company, as often as not, objects to it. You wind up uh, talking to some, you know, sort of uh, person in, at, at, a, at a company called MedSolutions, and you have to justify to this person uh, who probably uh, well, may have medical training, but they're not training in your field. Um, so I've got, you know, I have a retired chiropractor and I have to explain to this guy why this person with what seems to be acute appendicitis needs a CAT scan. So, you know, that delays care. It's unnecessary. It takes up my time. It's time I can't spend taking care of my patients. Now I just heard yesterday uh, the insurance companies now want us to resubmit our credentials every 120 days. So, you know, the um, credentials that we have to present to the state in order to maintain licensure, which we do every couple of years, that's not enough for the insurance companies. Now they want us to present those same credentials, fill out all those forms and submit them to them every four months. And of course, what happens if you don't do it on time? Well, if you submit any claims, they won't be paid. So wow. the insurance industry raises all sorts of barriers. And of course, the biggest barrier is uh, the, quote, cost sharing, end quote, 
So deductibles, co-payments, and cap on your benefits. In my example, I ruptured my quadriceps tendon last summer. I had to get it repaired. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to walk again. So I you know, went to the orthopedic surgeon. He repaired it. And the bill was $2,900. Well, the my wonderful insurance paid $900 because I had not met my $2,000 deductible. Right. Now, I'm a doctor, and I've got a pretty good income, so I can actually pay that. I was precepting at the residence clinic in the Merriam Hospital uh, this past week, and a gal was brought in a wheelchair. Uh, she had previously been able to walk, but she had fallen three months earlier, had broken the socket of her left hip. She was able to bear weight and walk limited distances, but not any further. Uh, she needs a hip replacement. Well, her 2000 deductible uh, is uh, an amount she can't meet. So this woman who was working, who has diabetes, who has hypertension, who was doing a good job of keeping those under control, is now about to lose her job. She, her diabetes is out of control. Her blood pressure is out of control because she can't exercise because she can't meet the $2,000 deductible that is required to, in order for her to get surgery that is vitally necessary. That $2,000 deductible, deductible may wind up killing her. And in fact, we know that this is the case. Our healthcare system, for people who are uninsured, there is a death rate. It's one for 1,000 people. That's a conservative estimate, which means that with 30 million people uninsured, Last year, 30,000 Americans died for the sole reason that they had no insurance. Insurance is a financial liability because of all these deductibles. It's the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in this country. These two facts don't occur in any other industrialized country. We need a system where when people need care, they get it. And in this country, that doesn't happen. It's just, it, it is, as you say, a scam. And if it's a scam, then the pharmaceutical industry is extortion. You know, again, the prices that Americans pay for their pharmaceuticals is far higher than anywhere else in the world. And these are medicines that are life-sustaining. So if you've got somebody who says, you're going to pay what I want you to pay or you're going to die, I would call that extortion. You know, uh, so more and more Americans are actually going online and getting their prescriptions sent to them from Canada because right. Canadian, the Canadian Medicare controls prices. American Medicare could control prices but our wonderful Congress has legislated that it cannot do so because that would be contrary to the financial interests of the pharmaceutical companies. So when you say this is a scam, my God, is it ever. Well, uh, one more thing. I know you have a time limit here. I'll let you go. But isn't it ironic, though, that conservatives uh, who rail against uh, Medicare for all and, and universal health insurance always try to make it about you don't want the gov you don't want the government making health care decisions for you. You want your doctors and blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, as you pointed out, doctors really aren't always allowed to make these decisions. It's the the health insurance industry, some random suit who may or may not have the, the appropriate health knowledge. That's deciding that's basically the death panel that the conservatives warned us about. That's happening right now in the health insurance industry, a private corporation whose sole mission is to make money. Now, the government's sole mission is not to make money. So when you look at putting the government in charge of something, it's like, all right, well, we know their profit motive is not there, you know, but with a private corporation, that's the whole point. And I wish people would understand that. Right. I mean, it's just it's crazy. Yep, that's absolutely, absolutely true. In fact, you know, whether people want to admit what a conservatives want to admit it or not, the government is already making those decisions. The term uh, medical necessity or medically necessary, that is a term that's determined by the Center for Medicaid Services and Medicare Services. So that is a panel of physicians, health experts who, who evaluate 
medical treatments and diseases based on controlled clinical trials. So this is evidence-based medicine. And that is how the center, you know, CMS determines whether or not something is medically necessary. So whether conservatives like to admit it or not, the government is already deciding what care is necessary, but it's not based, as you say, on the private, you know, profit motive for private insurance companies. It's based on evidence. Now, what has been shown to work? Because you're right, the you know, Center for Medicaid Services, they don't have a financial dog in this fight. They're just looking to see what can we actually show is medically effective. And that's what they term medically necessary uh, or medical necessity. And the private insurance companies have no such scruple. Their motive is to, um, is to, uh, you know, to, to make money. And if, if you don't like the government, uh, you know, sort of paying for your care. Well, our entire healthcare system is already paid. 60% of the money that pumps into our healthcare system is already paid for by taxes. So the government already pays for the majority of medical costs in this country, uh, despite the fact they're not allowed to make decisions like negotiate lower drug prices. And if you don't like the government doing stuff, well, don't drive on the interstate highway system. <laughs> uh, don't, don't rely on the U.S. military to protect you from terrorist attacks and foreign invasion. Um, you know, the, the government does, there are so many things that the government has to do because they're not profitable. And healthcare is one of them. Healthcare, you know, taking care of people who are chronically ill makes no one rich. And so to try to sort of pretend that financial institutions that must turn a profit are the best entities to decide what kind of care is provided it's a, an insoluble conflict of interest. This should never happen. It's ridiculous. Uh, you know, this is something that must be done by the government. And to pretend that it, you know, somehow is worse if it's done by the government is just, it, it's just so utterly illogical as to be laughable. But that's what we're with right now. Wow. Thank you so much for being on. This is amazing. And I really appreciate you taking the time on your busy morning. Oh, uh, you know, Steve, I appreciate the coverage you've given us to over the year. I just, you know, Back a few years back, uh, we had one of the former presidents of PNHP come up and give a lecture to the medical students at Brown. And, uh, you know, we at that point were used to being utterly ignored by anybody in the press. And so it's a cold winter night. It's snowing. The weather is horrible. And this guy with a camera comes, um, you know, walking into the uh, into the lecture hall. Uh, and is actually going to record this lecture and then post it. And that person was you, Steve. So I, I'm very grateful that there are there is still independent journalism in this state that's willing to report uh, things that are not profitable and that the corporate media doesn't want to talk about. Um, I, I won't. I cannot forget that during the presidential debate, uh, the uh, back then, the, during the last election, Elizabeth Warren was trying to explain. Uh, how you pay for Medicare for all. And George Stephanopoulos, who is the moderator, kept hammering her on one point. So you're going to raise taxes, right? And she kept saying, well, uh, but, you know, again, we're paying for it now with premiums, which are not, you know, based on your income. So they're unfair. And Stephanopoulos would have none of it. He just said, you're going to raise taxes, right? So right. I am very, very grateful for people like you, Steve, who are willing to report the story accurately and not with some hidden agenda. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. That was an amazing story. I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> Dr. J. Mark Ryan, everyone, thank you so much for calling to the show, sir. We really appreciate it, and you have a good week. Anytime. It's my pleasure. All right. Take care. Take care. All right.
for the record, that was unscripted, and we did not ask him to compliment me at the end of the uh, his his uh, appearance here. Oh, so this paper I have here with all the stuff he just said, I should not tell <laughs> yeah, anyone about that. Yeah, we we do not we did not pay for that at all. That was just <laughs> oh, completely unsolicited and uh, very appreciated though. Um, I remember being there that night because it was one of those. I was wor- working with Rhode Island Future at the time, and uh, I wanted to do stories about like upcoming big ideas, right? Like like single payer, and you know, and finding local stories that reflect big ideas in the future is really hard. This showed up on my. Facebook somewhere, and I was like, I'm gonna go to that. And it was snowing out; it was miserable. <laughs> and I remember, and it was all the way across town. It was in Providence, but I had to still navigate through the snow. And it was like six inches of snow. Parking, well, there's a parking man, right? So I had to pay for parking, right? And uh, so it was like eight bucks to park at night in this like little lot. And I, so I, I did the whole thing, and uh, I was very happy to be able to do it. It was it was nice and warm inside anyway. And of course, Mark and Linda were super cool. So Linda, being Mark's uh, wife and a lawyer and a leader. Um, in politics in their own way. So very, very important people. Nice. So uh, that was a great conversation. A lot of uh, stuff that, that us progressives know, but I think that uh, some conservatives and liberals out there may not be aware, you know, especially, listen, if you don't ever use your health insurance, if you just, you know, go to the doctor for a checkup once a year and everything's fine, nothing else happens, then you really are kind of never exposed to the scam that is health insurance, you know, and let's be, let's be frank here. Health insurance is a scam. It really okay? is. Now, there's other insurance that's out there that's real insurance, okay? For example, homeowner's insurance, that's real insurance, okay? When your home goes up in flames, the health, in, uh, excuse me, the home insurance company doesn't say, you know, just make up some reason why uh, it's not covered. Oh, you had you had cherry cabinets in your kitchen? Right. Oh, cherry cabinets are not covered. We only cover, cover maple cabinets. Like, this is the kind of stuff you laugh, but this is the kind of stuff that the health insurance industry does all the time. Like I said, when we were uh, interviewing um, Dr. Ryan, is I I put in a claim. I got my pipeline insurance. I put in a claim. It's like a couple of years ago um, for a specialist. And they denied the claim. And they denied the claim because the reason was that I already had other insurance with United Health. And I had this insurance for 20 years. And ironically, it's crazy. I had this health claim for 20 years. Never paid a premium for it. <laughs> never got any bill or statement in the mail for it. But yet, it's somehow able to deny me coverage from the people I do actually pay for health insurance. So, so I found that interesting. And then it opened up a whole sort of sea of, of disaster. You know, other claims went in. You find all these reasons they deny your claim. So the next claim they deny was because I didn't have a referral. Uh, however, they did, in fact, get a referral for this specialist. And they just said, I didn't get one. So they just make up stuff. They literally just lie. You know, and there's no accountability. This goes for anyone, whether it's... Whether it's police, whether it's government officials, whether it's health insurance, anywhere with this accountability, you're going to get major, major corruption and ethical issues here. And that's what you have with the health insurance industry. So they just make up, they right. literally just make up reasons why to deny your claim. Um, well, they also true, just too sick, too tired, too busy to be able to call and rectify the situation. If they question everything and throw bullshit in front of you every time, you never get a chance. You know, that means every single thing you need, you have to fight for with a phone call, with a plead, with a, you know, oh, come on, please give it to me. And then they give it to you and act like, well, for you, we can do this right now. Yep. You know, so it's now it's a gift. It's not something you paid for. It's a gift to you. Yeah. It's it's, it's funny because, you know, you you hear this stuff from, you know, ordinary people and it's like, really? Are they really doing that? It's almost unbelievable. And then you follow uh, former uh, Cigna executive, Wendell Potter, 
is on Twitter. He's very active on Twitter. He's a former health insurance executive turned whistleblower. And follow him. I highly recommend him. And he confirms all this stuff. He's like, yes, so we're told, deny everything. Deny, 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 deny. Don't pay any claims. Try to all claim paying whatever. So, you know, right there, he tells you that these people are not actually interested in providing insurance. Okay. Now, granted, homeowners and auto insurance companies, I'm sure that they have people that try to deny claims for valid reasons. You know, um, you know, someone robbed your, your vehicle and they're suspicious about if it was robbed and if, you know, whatever. I can understand that. It makes sense. But they pay. Okay. I've had auto accidents. I've been in, you know, two accidents, I believe, in my life. And they pay out. Okay, they pay what you're collision, they pay, you know, medical payments, they pay, all right? Bottom line, they have two different insurance companies, they both pay, and they didn't give you know, probably either. Uh, Homeowners insurance, I have the claims, but I have people that have the same thing, they, they get paid. Right. And the health, and the, and these, these insurance companies actually sometimes overpay, you know, especially homeowners, they give you, like, more money. My sister had literally a small tornado, uh, went to their neighborhood last year in Connecticut, and it, it Damaged their house pretty bad. Probably, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars worth of physical damage. And health insurance, no, I keep saying health insurance, the homeowner's insurance company gave them like thirty, thirty five thousand dollars um, to repair what was only twenty thousand worth of damage. So they gave them more than was necessary. And you know, that's that's great. No, that's great. At least they're they're giving you not only what you paid for, but more than what you paid for. With health insurance, it's totally the opposite. You pay your premiums, you have super high premiums every month. And when the, when the uh, you know, when push comes to shove and you need that insurance, it's not there. That's right. There's always a catch. There's, you know, but you have to fill your deductible or uh, your plan reset or, um, oh, you had a family plan. Your wife died and so you're not on a family plan anymore. Right. And really, I mean, these are horrible, horrible stories. If you think like that didn't happen. That absolutely happened. Nothing I've said right now. Or you think it's like a one-off. Something that happens occasionally. Yeah. And, and it's not. It just is routine. It happens everywhere. If you can find 20 examples without trying hard in Rhode Island alone, without trying hard, I'm just saying, like, just think, look around, look, read Twitter, read Facebook, read whatever. You'll hear these horror stories. Yep. Multiply, there's only a million people in Rhode Island. <laughs> okay. Multiply that 20 by the number of people in America who are suffering right now. Yep. Who are yep. going bankrupt, who are dying, literally and, dying. And I'm going to give you a little anecdote here. So after all these claims I put through, Kept getting denied. People that know me know that I don't really take this kind of crap from me, from especially from corporations. Um, I take action and I, and I get stuff done. And you have to. Because if, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? You know, and these people got to know that if you screw up, you're going to be held accountable for it. So um, I contacted, first I contacted the Division of Insurance. It's a Massachusetts health plan. Um, I, I'm away from Massachusetts, so that's why. And I called the Division of Insurance, and it turns out this plan that they have is actually, uh, it's an interesting plan. It's uh, self-funded. And what that actually means is that the company she works for, in this case, Steward Health Plan, which is the largest hospital chain, I believe, in the country, um, they're, her employer, they um, self-fund the plan, meaning that they pay all of the costs of the, of the plan in terms of, you know, whether you get a test done or you have surgery done, right, like that. Blue Cross Blue Insurance, Blue Cross Blue Shield does not actually pay for this stuff. Steward pays directly. Blue Cross is hired to manage the plan. Blue Cross's job is basically uh, their steward's hitman, I guess you could say. And their job is to deny stuff for steward. So uh, when they deny coverage, it's not for them to save money. It's for the employer to save money. And it's, it's, it's a unique plan, but it's not the only one like it out there. 
So anyway, the bottom line is that the Division of Insurance does, insurance does not handle these types of plans. The Department of Labor handles these types of plans. So, okay. So they gave me the contact. I contacted the Department of Labor in Massachusetts. And an uh, awesome woman, I believe her name was Susan, extremely helpful, um, totally understood the situation because she's seen it a million times. And we had, you know, conversation about, you know, outside of my issue about like what this is like dealing with. And she told me straight out, the, ins health, the health insurance industry runs the show, okay? The government doesn't run the show. The health insurance industry runs the show. They do whatever they want. There is no accountability. There is no enforcement. They can do whatever they want and they are doing whatever they want. And I said, I don't get it. Like, aren't you in a position of authority where you can do something? She's like, oh no. For us to take an action requires such an extraordinary amount of misconduct that you almost never see it. Never see it. <laughs> And I, in my story in particular, was was just incredible. They made up the fact that I had insurance with someone else to deny me coverage and then said that I didn't get referrals that I got. And not only that, but they told me I didn't get referrals on follow-up appointments, which do not require referrals because a referral usually is good for a number of appointments because they assume follow-ups. So they, they take every possible avenue they can to scam you, to deny you what you paid for. And anyone that thinks that private health insurance is a good thing is insane, okay? You're insane. You've never used your insurance before. Or you got really lucky, okay? Because it is a scam. I would much, much rather have the most incompetent form of government running my health insurance than I would rather have Blue Cross and Blue Shield running it, okay? Mm -hmm. Because like I said earlier when we interviewed Dr. Ryan, I think that conservatives don't understand because the TV tells them how to think that private corporations are only looking out for profit that's it if they're providing a service to you it is only profit and 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 when the government's running the show when the government's administering whether it be social security or medicare or whatever they're not looking to profit that's not the government's role the government's not a private corporation that has to pay out shareholders it's just the government so the government's not going to have a profit motive. So when people try to scare you, conservatives and the, the TV, Fox News, try to scare you and say, you know, there's going to be death panels and the government's going to determine, you know, whether you can get a test or not, or whether you can get a procedure or not. First of all, as Dr. Ryan pointed out, the government people in charge of this sort of thing are all actual doctors with significant experience and they use science and they approve almost any test that you're going to need that you actually need. Okay. Right. I talked to uh, my grandparents. I've talked to older people that have Medicare and denials are just not a common thing. They're just not. No, uh, there are denials, of course, but but they're not a common thing. Whereas with the health insurance industry, everything's denied. So for you to argue that the health like Blue Cross and Blue Shield are a better deal for you, that they're going to say yes when the government says no is a bunch of crap. OK, that's that's not the truth. All right. It's not the truth. And it baffles me why anyone would want a private corporation running anything that the government could run. Why would you put a profit motive on prison, okay, or health insurance Whoa. or anything or, or ticketing, like, like traffic tickets, like they have the cameras now, they're privately run. Like, like that's not about safety. It's about money. It's about making money. Right. Like anytime you money. hear a, a private corporation is going to be involved, just say no. Right. Absolutely right. Government services should be provided by the government. Private services should be provided by, you know, I don't want government-run movie theaters, but I certainly want a government-run fire department, right? I mean, just think about what those two things mean, right? Movie theaters can compete. Movie theaters can put out movies. I will go see a movie when I want. If I don't want to see a movie, I don't see it. But when my house is on fire, I need the freaking fire department there, like right now, right? Mm -hmm. And Essential I don't want services. to have to compare prices. I don't want to have to go to a catalog and say, 
oh, this fire service will come here for this much, but this other fire service will only charge me so much. No, I just want a fire department to come and put out my fires. When I'm sick, I want a doctor to come and make me well. This is how this works. I want the government to work. No, and that's what we all want, right? We want things to work. We don't want to have to like worry about this. I don't go to the grocery store and have to argue to sell me Rice Krispies, right? I just go in, I grab Rice Krispies and I'm done, right? Supermarkets work fine, right? I don't need the government telling me Rice Krispies or shredded wheat. But when you're, when you're sick, there's only one course of action usually. You can go to two different doctors, get slightly divergent, but generally, if you've got a tumor, take it out. If you've got a broken bone, set it. These are things we have to do. So there are basic services to deliver, basic things that need to happen. And when you have a much more difficult disease, like cancer, for instance, um, you the stress of that should not be magnified by also dr- dealing with the stress of job loss, money, everything else. You should just get that taken care of, right? All the other stresses. I mean, stress is bad for you anyway. Stress with cancer or stress with another condition, it's just nightmarish. So yeah, the, the policies of this country are causing so much mental anguish for so many people. Right. And it's just, it's, it's so embarrassing. And we wonder why people are, why mental health issues are on the rise here. Yeah. It's because of the stress and the pressure of trying to live in a world that is literally crushing us. Yes, yes. And the answer the answer from the government is more cops and more prisons. Right. And let's just put these mentally health, mentally unfit people in prison. That seems like a, a smart right. idea. And, right? and, and you prison. know, by the way, we're all heading to some level of mental unhealth in a world that crushes us so routinely. Oh, yeah. Right, oh, that yeah. doesn't care about us at all. I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine what it must be like to be in this situation with with you know whether it's no employment and your rent's due and you've got health issues and everything else i mean it, it feels like the, the world is just caving in on you right. and you now that's that's why that's why i do this you know that's why i participate with uprise and everything else it's not for money i don't, I don't take any money from uprise this is like a volunteer thing because um you know i've been there you know, I have, I might have money now, but there was many times in my life where I didn't have money and I know what it's like. And it's so depressing and it's debilitating. You literally don't want to leave your house and do anything. And, you know, that's not the way to live your life. So, you know, if, if we can get the word out here and help people understand and get people on the same page that private health insurance is a really, really bad idea. I mean, you liberals that are sticking up for the ACA, the ACA is crap. Okay, the ACA is a Republican health plan. I'll okay, tell you it's this: a gift to the to the health insurance industry. I'll tell you this about the ACA. When we first started, my wife and I were paying six hundred dollars. She was shortly thereafter diagnosed with uh, colorectal cancer. We're paying a thousand dollars a month right now. We have huge deductibles. Um, we are seriously in debt. We were not in debt when this started. We are now seriously in debt, and it's all medical debt. And I'm not talking about a little bit. I'm talking about a lot, like more than half our house is right now invested in her health, this despite having the ACA. This is despite getting Obamacare coverage and then immediately, or not immediately, but then shortly thereafter her being diagnosed. So we've been fighting this forever. It is, we are constantly being denied. Most recently there was a medication that the doctor recommended or not even recommended, said you need. It was, uh, turned out to be $500 a dose. And so that's like a week's worth. And they said, uh, well, we're not, gonna cover five hundred dollars a dose your would the insurance company simply would not pay now this is this is after our deductibles and everything else we paid our deductible this year already but our deductible went away like that um but they said if you call the company that produces this medication they might be able to work out a deal with you so she called the company that produces the medication and they said oh if you can answer like two questions and she did 
then okay, we can give it to you for free. <laughs> so the difference, <laughs> so a $500 medication suddenly became free because she answered two questions on some kind of thing. I don't even know. We don't even understand how that is possible. We don't under, I don't understand why it's suddenly $500 and then suddenly it's zero. Were Nothing the questions about related to your finances or were they related to no, her health? It was, it, we can't tell. We don't know. We're not sure why only two questions. It was like we answered two poll questions and that suddenly, oh yeah, now we can give it to you for cheaper. I don't know. Maybe there's a government program that we're not aware of that they're getting on the other side. Maybe there's a test program. Maybe there's, we don't know. All we know is, thankfully, because it turns out that that $500 was actually half because they only sell it in like half the doses dosage she needs. So when they said it's $500 a dose, well, actually she needed two doses of this. So it was actually $1,000 that we were going to be in. And that was going to be $1,000 a week for six weeks just for this medication that she absolutely needs. So I'm just going to throw that out there as an example of how the without the ACA, we would be homeless and we'd be on Medicaid. We'd be on the cheapest possible system. And I don't know that my wife would even have survived it today. Just saying. ACA did, in fact, help her save her life and our finances to the extent it has. But with Medicare for All, we wouldn't have any problems whatsoever. The pressure would be off her entirely in her health care, and it would not be the added stress on top of the health care issues and the debt that we've incurred as a result of this. And I'm not doing this to complain or to compare my story to anyone else. I'm very happy with my life, but we need to do better for the people of this world. We do. Um... Yeah, we'll, we'll switch it up here. I want to talk about yeah, let's a talk about of, of interesting bills. Let's talk about happier things. <laughs> <laughs> but just uh, just quickly to give some tips to people that that get these crazy medical bills and you know freak out. You know, um, first first of all, speak up. Always ask. You know, like Steve did. You know, if you get a five hundred dollar medication, you absolutely need health insurance. Not paying for it. Uh, call call the, the the pharmaceutical company that makes it. Ask. You know, we yeah. see these ads, you know, AstraZeneca may be able to help you if you can't afford your medication. You know, ask. See what those programs are that are available because, you know what, these pharmaceutical companies, they want to make money, right? And it's better to make some money than no money. So if you can't afford the medication, they make no money. And if you can't pay $500, but you can pay $25 or $50, they're still making money on that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, and they probably get rebates back from the government or other programs in, to, to make them whole. So the first thing is ask, ask whoever you can, can you make a, can you give me a discount? Can you give me a break? The second thing is get itemized bills. Okay. When you go to the hospital, okay, they will charge you a hundred dollars for an aspirin. All right. They just will, because they know that you're not going to see, and it's just going to go to the health insurance company and it's just going to be all rounded up to a number. And then here you pay this number, get an itemized bill. And the hospital will show you every little thing they paid for. And a lot of times when they realize that, oh, this is not going to look good, they will credit things. I've seen this happen. They will credit bills. I've seen, you know, five, $7,000 bills become $1,200 bills because when they were asked to itemize, you, you show a guy a bill and it's like, you know, one Tylenol, $75, one aspirin, 112. How, how are you marking up aspirin like that? Like, it's just, it's yeah. just monopoly money. So that's what I, I would recommend at least. Uh, ask, make yourself heard, you know, um, and, and ask for an itemized bill. You're, you're paying for this stuff, so you might as well get a list of what you're paying for. Um, so, Steve, yeah, a bunch of interesting bills. Uh, you've been tweeting nonstop, it seems, the past yeah. couple of weeks, all the bills that have come out. And, uh, and on Uprise, we've been retweeting the most interesting ones. Um, yeah. Whether we support them or not, we've been trying to retweet the most interesting bills on the Uprise Twitter account. Um, a couple I want to talk to you real quick. We'll go through these quickly. Uh, all right. So, Senate uh, 444. Yep. Uh, seems to cap the interest rate for loans at 12%. Right. It's currently, I believe, 26 or 21 something or something. like that. It's in the 20s. But something this high. would effectively eliminate uh, 
payday lenders. Yes, this is the backdoor way to end payday lenders. Right. Or not really end them. I mean, they can charge lower interest if they want, but that's uh, but they don't. They typically charge a very well. They've high testified rate. in the past at other hearings about payday lending that doing so would destroy their business model and they would not be able to survive and they'd have to leave Rhode Island. Yeah, because they have to charge that much interest to cover their overhead and everything else and the yeah. whole profit model and, and everything. So um, if they don't charge that much, it's not worth going into a low income neighborhood and fleecing the uh, residents there of, of, out of every possible penny. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a very good thing. This was introduced by a number of progressive legislators. Yep. Uh, so very happy to see this. Uh, Senate 431. Uh, this guarantees overtime pay for health care and maintenance yeah. workers. Um, healthcare workers, that's an interesting one. You know, I, I guess that the, the rules typically or the laws have typically been like if a place is normally open 24 seven, they kind of just kind of exempt overtime. I'm not sure why though. I mean, why are healthcare workers exempt from overtime? They're working the same job. They're working a hard job. It's not an easy job. Right. They're working this job and they over 40 hours is just no overtime. Well, while no one's looking over the past 20 years or more, right? Special interest industries go in to the general assembly usually into the commerce or finance departments, not healthcare, finance or commerce um, committees. And they advocate for things, for exceptions, and they get them. And, or they go direct, directly to the Department of Labor and Training, whose executive director has limited capacity to make exceptions to all sorts of labor rules, right? So this is how this is, goes on. And so, and, the, and by the way, until very recently, none of these finance, well, few of the commerce-led um, um, committees have ever been aired. You can't go back and try to find a video five years ago of a commerce committee. One, two, but they meet several times a year, several times a session, but they're not there because you don't want to, you don't want to be on screen saying these people don't deserve fair pay. Yep. That your nurse who comforted you throughout the night at the hospital, she doesn't deserve overtime pay, you know, screw her or these maintenance workers or anybody else, right? So that's what that's what this is about. So that's yeah. where these things come from. Definitely a special interest provision there that that enabled this. So we're glad that that's gonna. Hopefully that'll come off. Um, Senate four ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an interesting one. It was actually this bill comes from, uh, um, I I believe um, Republican. I think it's an all Republican. Uh, well, Arch- Archambault might be on this one. Well, I he's a Democrat. Archambault's yeah, yeah. on this one. Yeah. He's yeah, I guess Republican anyway. Um, Whatever. Hey, you run as a yeah. dem buddy. We know what you're up to. All right. Um, so so cons- we'll call it conservative lawmakers came out with this bill. This bill actually uh, says motor vehicle fines should be uncollectible by the state after seven years. Yeah. Uh, I agree with that, you know, because, listen, if you murder someone, there should be no statute of limitations on that because, you know, you, you, you committed a real crime, a crime of violence. And if 20 years from now they catch up to you and fine you, then they should put you in jail. But you know what? If you had a fine and the state couldn't be bothered to collect it for seven years, okay, then give up. Just give up. I mean, it's like any other debt. You know, if you owe the phone company $100 for a bill and, and, and you didn't pay it and they can't collect it from you, at some point you've got to give up, yeah. you know. And a case in point, I got a letter like four or five years ago. I got a letter from the IRS, okay, about a business I owned. Uh, 15 years earlier, and they asked me, hey, you didn't submit your final tax return for 2006 for this business. And it's like, we closed, we went bankrupt, we went under, like, that's it, it's done. There's no money coming to you, it's it's over. And also, why are you asking me this 15 years later? Right. You know, like, seriously, like, I don't remember anything about this business, really, except the name and what we did. I don't remember anything about the tax issue. I don't have records for this stuff. Right. So I wrote the back and I said, listen, 
I don't know what you're talking about. I think they also said that I, uh, I didn't file a tax return for this business between like 2010 and 2015. I was like, well, I didn't own this business between then. The business closed well before that. So right. uh, you're not getting any tax returns. You're not getting any money from me uh, and go away. And to their credit, they did go away. Yeah. But the fact is, is that it really angered me that they tried to reach out to ask about something that happened 15 years ago. It's really hard because I had a business as well, uh, my comic book store. And when I closed that, um, I thought nothing of it. And then, like, years and years and years later, I don't know how long it was, like eight, ten years later, I got a thing from the uh, State Department of Taxation asking me about all the sales tax I collected and never paid from the time the store end closed. And I'm like, well, store closed in this state, and you're asking me about stuff that happened after the state. So, yeah, there was no sales tax. I didn't sell any comic books for that time, never collected any tax. Didn't have to do any payments. And then, you know, so yeah, this happens. But I was also thinking, well, you know, why are we going back 10 years to say, hey, you owe us like estimated like five, six, eight hundred dollars a month since then yeah, on yeah. stuff you never sold? I think this bill might be a response to the fact that uh, I heard that the, uh, I don't know if it's the DMV or the some state agency here in Rhode Island is going after people that had traffic tickets from 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. This uh, is, they, this happens every once in a while with somebody at the DMV. I guess now because they have all time because yep. before they were busy, right? But yeah. now who's going to the DMV? So now they have time to look at old files and say, how are we going to make some money? Hey, let's go back and start making sure people paid their old parking and tickets and everything else. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. But the fact that you have to worry about debt like that, you know, like you may even forgot about it. It might have got lost in the mail, whatever. There's a lot of reasons, but you have to worry about that seven years later. It's ridiculous. Yeah, who I has financial that. records going past seven years? I mean, right. they, my accountant tells me to get rid of them. Yeah. After seven years, it's gone or um, whatever. So the next one, uh, Senate 406, yep. um, people that own firearms must store them locked. At first, I read this and I thought, wait, you have to keep it in a safe? Because that kind of defeats the whole purpose of using it for self-protection. I mean, if someone breaks into your house, yeah. you got to find the key. you got to go to the safe, which may or may not be. Or, or remember the combination while you're trying, well, right. there's a guy in your house. Right, there's a guy in your house. So like, so I totally get that as, a, as not a firearm owner. Um, I, I get that. That's ridiculous that you have to keep it in a safe. But then I read it and it seems like the bill just calls for the gun to be locked, like actually have a lock on it. Um, so I get that's reasonable. I, I get it. I have kids, you know, and um, I have things around the house that probably could be construed as a weapon. Uh, but I just I teach my kids, listen, you don't touch this, okay, ever for any reason whatsoever. The yeah. end. Stay out and, of the knife drawer. And, and then that's pretty much it. Right. Um, if you have younger kids that don't understand English yet, then yeah, you should, in fact, keep your guns away where they can't reach them. We have a lock and, on our cabinet with all our cleaning supplies. Just because little kids come over, we don't want them open it up and drinking Drano or for something, sure. right? You know, for sure. So I think uh, even even I have a um, um, how do I describe this uh, as a, uh, a self protection device that has a lock, like, a, like it's 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 got a key lock as part of it, and I keep it secure in a place where I know where it is, and I keep the the key in it. It's locked, but the key's in it. Because the last thing I need if I need this thing is to go looking for the key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, an emergency situation, in the middle of the night, someone breaks into your house, you need to defend yourself. I'm not going to look for the key. I'm like half asleep. So, yeah. So I think that, you know, if, if you want to store your firearm locked and you can keep the key in it, whatever, as long as it's in a safe location, use your common sense. Yep. And that's the problem. They have to make laws like this, stupid laws like this, well, because people are, don't use common sense. Because children occasionally find guns and kill themselves yep. or their, or others, right? Yep. By accident. Not, yep. You know, no, no, no five-year-old should have to live with the idea that they shot their three-year-old brother or sister, right? Exactly. You shouldn't have to do that. Exactly. So, so the next one, uh, Senate 404. Oh, oh my favorite. 
world-famous highway protest bill from our friends, uh, Senators Rep. Takis, Paolino, and Elaine Morgan. Yeah. Um, this is the uh, we hate you trying to defend black people bill. So we're going to put up this don't protest in the highway bill. Yeah. This is like the uh, all lives matter or the blue line version of of protesting here in terms of of making up a problem um, yeah. that's clearly directed at at uh, a First Amendment right. Okay, so as far as First Amendment goes, Senators Raptakis, Palino, and Elaine Morgan. Not big fans of it. Raptak has introduced a version of this bill many years ago, shortly after some Black Lives Matter protests spilled over onto the highway way, way back. Early on in my days uh, covering stuff like this. And uh, I ended up writing some stuff again, opposed to this bill, of course. And then um, I ended up d- debating him on, on radio or TV, one or the other. And, um, you know, he sincerely, he, I think he's sincere about this bill. But at the same time, it's not, it's just bad policy, bad idea. Highway... You know, we, we all know 95 is the highway, but how many of us understand that state highways include things like Smith Street? You know, so suddenly, you know, you can bet your um, an impromptu like mob of Trump supporters stowing up the state house to complain will not be construed as a blocking the highway. But if a bunch of um, Black Lives Matter protesters do the same, they could easily be construed as blocking the highway and find themselves arrested by this law, even if they're not on 95. You're correct. And it's- the number of times people have gone on a highway... Um, in protest in our, in my lifetime in Rhode Island, maybe three, maybe three, right? Yeah. So don't, I mean, I, or, I, or in possibly four, yeah. but you know what I'm saying? But that's where, that's the realm of it. It's, it's not a big problem and it's not worth eroding our basic civil liberties for. Right. I mean, a, a crime and misdemeanor. Sure. Absolutely. I agree with that. You can't, yeah. you have to have something that, that stops people from doing that. But on the other hand, a felony, a felony. Yeah. We don't need to be, yeah, you know, felon. Well, that's the other thing too. These felonies will then be applied to young people of color yep. and deny them things like uh, educational opportunities, housing opportunities, employment opportunities. It'll basically just ruin your life. If you have a felony on your record, it's way harder to get hired. And if you go to a guy and say, I have a felony on my record, and they say they don't necessarily say what for, they immediately think, oh, my God, this person's a, a robber or a rapist or a murderer. They don't think I joined a protest to save black lives and I was on a highway. You know, that's like that. They don't think of that as a felony. And, you know, there's another interesting bill being introduced this year, which looks at what felonies are. Did you know that it's a felony to have a, um, a truck where horses are stacked one on top of the other? <laughs> or that it's a felony to, do, to deliberately do damage to a fire hydrant? So, wow. all right. Think, all right. Well, think about it. Interesting. These are things that, like, yeah, they're findable offenses. They're maybe even jailable offenses. But if I take a baseball bat to a fire hydrant out of anger or stupidity, yeah. that's not a felony idea. No, I mean, listen, if, if, if you damage a fire hydrant to the point where it doesn't work and then it's needed for uh, a home fire, then okay, I can see that maybe, being turned into but a if, felony. But they'd have to be connected in some way, right? right? They'd have to be connected. But right. just, just wanton, just trying to d- damage a, a fire hydrant should definitely be a finable offense. If like, I did the same thing to a firebox or a mailbox, it, necess- it wouldn't necessarily be a felony. No, I don't think so. Right? And that's the, that's the thing. So these types of ideas, or stacking horses, right, being a felony, I mean... Sure, maybe it's a problem. Maybe there's plenty of good health reasons not to stack your horses on top of each other in a truck. I get it. But it's not a felony offense. But it's a felony, and therefore you carry a felony for these things. There's many, many things like that in our books. Those are just two more ridiculous examples, but there's many more. So 
figuring out what really constitutes a felony and why I should carry a charge, like a felony charge all my life, as opposed to a misdemeanor charge, is something that we really should get into control. And we have to also have to realize that it's very unlikely that people of certain classes are going to be felonized for their behavior as opposed right. to this, other people. This bill, this highway protest bill, just basically gives police the discretion yeah. to decide what types of speech they approve and which they do not right. approve. Right, exactly right. You know, if it's a pro-Trump support, well, pro-whatever conservative movement of the week it happens to be, let's be honest, cops are not stopping that. They're not. It's right. just not going to happen. If it's a pro-lefty, pro progressive movement, Black Lives Matter, they're going to rein in this, use this law to, to stifle speech and to, uh, you know, give everyone a, a felony record for Yeah, blue, a Blue Lives Matter demonstration probably doesn't have to worry about it. No. A no. Black Lives Matter demonstration does have to matter. So speaking of terrible law enforcement uh, policies, uh, Senate 400 uh, will end uh, the private prisons in Rhode Island. Uh, so I believe that's just the Wyatt. Yeah, the Wyatt will claim that they're not a private prison, but they're a public-private blah, blah, blah. Um, in reality, they're pretty private. They make money by hosting prisoners. The money just happens to go to Central Falls. If they make any money, which, by the way, they never have. Never make money. And there's... They were promised that to get the prison in Central Falls. Right. They were promised profits, and they just never happen. And there's a slew of people who invested in this prison who stand to make a lot of money with their investment if it were to be successful. And yet, and they're all privates. So I don't understand... You know, we, I understand that there's a technical differentiation here, but the, here is the problem. The why is a terrible idea. The why is a terrible institution. It's placed in Central Falls... In a terrible way. You know, it's right next to the um, athletics uh, fields for the high school students and the students in uh, Central Falls. And I remember Shelby Maldonado, former state rep, told me that when she used to play soccer on that field, the kids from the opposing teams, let's say coming from Lincoln, Lincoln or some other, the other places, would actually say, hey, that's where you're going to live. That's, where, that's your future over there. And they would point right to the prison. This is how they trash talked them during a game. Wow. Now, I know a lot about trash talk when I was a kid. We used to play Hendrickson. <laughs> you know, and I was at work vets and there was a lot of trash talk and there was a lot of mean things said. And I didn't even want to think about some of the stuff I might've said and they might've said to me, but that is classist, racist, terrible stuff. And that's what, and they, these kids literally play in the shadow of a federal prison, private, public, otherwise that prison does not belong there. Um, the people that prison has a history of abuse, a history of terrible things. And right now it's house it's housing ice. Well, a small number of ice prisoners, and uh, other people. So this would not immediately release people from that prison. So it was not like the streets of Central Falls will suddenly be flooded with murderers. What would happen is it would be scaled down. Those prisoners would be transferred elsewhere, and we would no longer house ICE detainees in Rhode Island, private, public, whatever type of prison. So yeah, good so bill. This, so this bill, I believe, phases out the Wyatt uh, 2028, I think, somewhere around It does there. take time. Um, can you imagine though, like, like the reason that this, we tried to close this last year, I believe. And the reason that it didn't is because the bondholders that, that invested in this prison, they, they wanted to stay open so they could make money. Can you, can you just fathom the type of low life that you must be to invest in prisons? Like what level, like what was broken in your brain that, that investing in incarcerating people and putting people in cages is a good idea. Something is missing from your brain, if you think that that is a smart move, that is a moral decision that you're okay with, like investing a, in locking people up. You know, we should look at prisons as moral necessities at best, in the sense that there are some people who are dangerous and to our society, to our people, and therefore we need to care for them 
away from other people in society. Yeah, yeah. Right? If you had to make numbers, I bet it's probably 5% of the actual prison population. Maybe. Is, is that dangerous? Because you remember, like, you know, we watch shows and everything like that, but like talk to people that are in prison. Prison makes you violent. Okay, prison has this whole, this whole correction setting. They're not correcting anything. Okay, it's all lies. They're not correcting anything. They're not trying to rehabilitate you. Okay, prison makes you worse. If you go in bad, you come out worse. If maybe someday good, we'll do a maybe someday we'll do a show about crime as a social construct. Yeah, that should, should get people. Some, that. that should get people mad. Yeah, I'd like to love to talk to uh, uh, Representative Batista about that from a public defender's point of view, too. There's a lot of int information, intriguing information he shared with me about like how the whole system works and how corrupt it is. Yeah. Um, so, so that's that. Um, last one that I, I wrote down at least here, uh, Senate 394 calls for a twice yearly inspection for the Wyatt. Yeah. And that's good. Um, so we'll come in and make sure, I mean, the bill's kind of broad in what, in what it, you know, it's inspected. But the bottom line is that they want to make sure that, you know, these, these kids are not being mistreated, that, you know, processes are being followed and like that the whole bit. My question is, why are we not doing this to the ACI, too? Like, okay, just because they're kids, we're going to check it twice. But what about the ACI? Yeah, you know, I have a feeling I know about this um, only because the ACI is theoretically state-run and theoretically under, you know, this would allow for state inspections of the Wyatt twice yearly. Theoretically, we do have oversight of the ACI. The ACI might be run terribly, but the ACI is, in fact, state-controlled. And if we're doing something wrong there, that's something for the state to get it crap together and do it right, right? Yeah. What's going on at the uh, Wyatt isn't really being known in our state because we don't pay any attention to what's going on in the Wyatt. So, yeah, that's different. That's not the state's problem. When I ask questions about the Wyatt, they said, well, we don't have anything to do with the Wyatt, right? And yet the Wyatt does, in fact, lean on the Rhode Island Department of Health to make all its decisions as far as COVID going, right? So I guess we do have something to do with the Wyatt, but we want to say, well, we're there as an advisory capacity, whatever, but it's mixed. It's mishmash, right? It's a state-enabled corporation that, and um, it just needs more oversight. And that oversight would actually reveal problems or better prevent problems from occurring. People would not be able to abuse. I agree. I think we should, we should have something like the PARA, the Providence External Review Authority, for prisons. Yeah, it needs to be independent that has nothing to do with law enforcement or the prison Absolutely. system or anything like that. Go in and conduct audits and, and require cameras everywhere. Outside the site of guards. We should be able to interview prisoners with no guard being present at all. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And unfortunately, society in the United States is, is very punishing in that people who think that everyone's in jail deserves to rot there in jail. Yeah. And if people understood how the criminal justice system actually works and how how few people actually deserve to be in jail, it would blow your mind. Yeah, I know. Um, so, so that's that. Um, so uh, any bills that you wanted to talk about that I didn't cover here? Interesting. There's so many, I know. There was a lot. Um, I did actually um, cover um, this week the um, juvenile probation bill, which I think is really important. We've been introducing it for at least four years at this um, House and Senate. And this bill would allow juveniles who have been sentenced to life in prison a chance at parole after 15 years. Um, the poster child, the poster child, the poster person for this, although he did go to prison as a child, is Mario Montero, who at 17 years old, was in a gang, he fired a gun in the air, more or less, but he shot a, pat a man in the head nearby who was on the porch to watch like these two gangs fight, I guess. I don't exactly know all the circumstances. I read the report years ago, and that man died. Mario Montero was sentenced to two consecutive life prison uh, sentences in prison, and so basically he'd have to serve the, the rest of his life and then serve the rest of his life again, I guess. 
Um, he'll never, he's never going to see the outside of prison, but he went into prison at the age of 17. Um, since then, he's got an associate's degree. He's um, done a, he's a valedictorian of his Step Up anti-gang program. He trains um, uh, assistance dogs, medical assistance dogs for veterans. He's like a model prison. He's not a confused, abused 17-year-old kid anymore. He's 40 years old or close to 40 years old. And he's a man who has fully reckoned with his past, who is remorseful for the death and the terrible things he did, and also deserving of another shot at life. And so I think it's a really important bill is I think eight people only who this bill would affect in Rhode Island. And again, it wouldn't just immediately release them. It would just put them, give them a chance at parole, a parole board, be able to look at their accomplishments, their lives, the totality of their circumstances. Um, Everybody I talk to who leaves prison who knows Mario says he was a help to them and he was an amazing person. Also, there are people who have gone into the, our prison system for under similar circumstances as adults and they are now paroled because under normal circumstances, an adult isn't necessarily going to be hit with this. You know, there are some people who are as adults given prison without a chance of parole, but to do it to children. I honestly, and, and this might be controversial to some people, uh, certainly not progressives, I don't think, but um, I don't believe there should be any life life sentences at all. Period. Yeah, neither do I. None. And it's a United States construct, by the way. People are shocked to learn that other countries don't have life sentences. Right. Great Britain, it's 20, 25 years. is the maximum sentence. That's it. Right. And a lot of other countries, same way. You know, we always hear about other countries and, and what they do to punish their people. And, and I, you start to see now, especially recently, that the United States is 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 getting up there. Yeah, getting up there, the harshness of our punishments, you know, I know we don't talk about, you know, you always hear about, you know, this person was sentenced to uh, four years of hard labor in North Korea. Okay. Um, all right. Well, certainly that the, the labor is hard, but to, to act like in the United States that they aren't working slave labor, we, the same thing. Okay. You're paying you 10 cents an hour. It's pretty much slave labor uh, doing the same thing. And then they throw you in solitary. Right. And solitary is torture. Okay. And we do it all the time. There's tens of thousands of people right now in solitary confinement in our country, all being tortured mentally. And we okay. know what the impact of that on your mentality is, on, oh, your, yeah. on your mental health is. Yeah. I mean, people don't get it. People think that torture is physical torture. No, physical torture is easy. Physical right. torture ends. Okay. It ends at a certain point. Like if I'm, I'm ripping your nails off of your hand, eventually I'm going to stop. Like it's not going to go on forever. I'm just going to rip them off and they're off. And then the pain goes away and you're done. When your well, your mental health has been damaged, okay, right. um, it doesn't go away. The depression doesn't go away. Yeah. And when you're in that room, okay, and you're there forever, you start to, you go crazy. I know okay? people who have been in uh, solitary in Rhode Island, and they talk about how absolutely terrible it was and how afraid it makes them now, you know, and how, dam how damaging. Prison is hard no matter what. Solitary is harder. And... To be in prison with no hope of ever leaving at the age of 17, to just throw away a life like that. I mean, it's hard. I mean, and I'll, I'll go one more step. We don't have a death penalty in Rhode Island. And if I can help it, we'll never have the death penalty back in Rhode Island. Nationally, we should abandon the death penalty. We should outlaw it. Um, I would say that um, a life sentence is basically death by incarceration. It is. And I would say that it's, it's a form of death penalty. It absolutely is. Because, like, you know, you get sentenced to life in prison. All right, I still get to be alive, technically. But what are you doing? You're not You're not doing anything. You don't see your family right. anymore. You can't, you know, marry and have a wife and, and, and do something and contribute and start a business. Or, uh, you can't do any of that stuff, right. you know? 
And then, so they take away your life, but then they also torture you. Like, it's not just enough to take away your, your life, you know, for five years or 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is, but they also torture you while you're in there. You get crap food, you get crap facilities, you get thrown into solitary if you, if you do anything, whether it's the right thing or wrong thing, whether yeah. you whistleblow on a, on a CO that's, that's not being, uh, uh, um, acting appropriately or whatever it is. It's just all retaliation. It's run by, by little kids, the jocks from high school. That's who runs these prisons. And so you get this, this just lack of accountability and the people there, you know, society is basically like said, screw you. We don't care about you. Right. And again, it all comes down to that accountability thing I talk about all the time. If there's no accountability, then people are going to do the worst possible thing. Yep. And they do. They do. So anyway, this bill introduced by Julie Casimiro, she read, as part of her introduction to the bill, the testimony of Mario Montero, it was really something else because you could see that it emotionally affected Julie Casimiro quite a bit. Her voice cracked and broke a few times. It was really nicely done. It was really heartfelt on her part. It's a really important bill. I know it only affects eight people, but it's a super important bill um, because if lives matter, if black lives matter, then, or if, then these lives of the people inside that. Um, of the youth inside the ACI matter. And uh, I would like to see that us do better. All right. Yeah. So um, All right. that's the bills for the week. Yeah, I think that's um, I want to cover our hero of the week, or rather heroes yeah. of the week. Well, Steve? Yeah, I think our heroes of the week are the over 100 people who called in on Thursday night to the Senate House and Health and Human Services Committee to testify in favor of Medicare for All, single payer. I think they swamped that committee five hours of testimony right on all the bills but there were only five bills being considered and they went hours on single payer drilling it down saying we this is what we want we as rhode islanders want single payer we want better health care provided for us this is the way to do it i think that was heroic and awesome and so yes those hundred people did you happen to catch uh kudos to all of you who called in and, yeah and we really appreciate that you took your time to do that right. Um, and if you haven't done that, consider doing it. It's really easy, and it's been super easy during COVID. You get to do it right from the privacy of your own home. That's right. You know, just put it, put the TV on pause, and pick up the phone and did start you, reading. Did you happen to catch uh, Jackie Goldman's conversation with? I think it was uh, Corvisi. Who was it? Uh, Arthur Corvisi. Uh, no, I. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. That was. I also put that up. Yeah, that was an ex excellent conversation. Um, and uh, her pushback against what he said because he wanted to like. She came in and said. The number of people who died of COVID were is affecting. She was arguing for um, higher pay. Um, what is it? Uh, 1.3 hours pay for people who are working as frontline workers during COVID. Right? Yes, hazard workers, people who are on the front lines fighting COVID. Right. And uh, Mr. Corvisi said, uh, uh, you, know, you know, people that are dying here, they're the old old white men are dying. Old it's white. Not, yeah. It's not these essential workers. It's not these teens. It's not these kids. Right. That's what he said. And, and Jackie Goldman murdered him. Yeah, like, pushed literally back murdered him on video. Away. Right. Like, and, where are they catching it? Where are the old white 65 and over people catching this in, when they're inside their nursing homes? They're catching it from overworked people who can't take the time to care for themselves because they're running around in COVID themselves. Right? So if we can do more, something for them, we can actually help those people 65 and older. It was a very excellent exchange, and uh, she handled herself amazingly well on that. And uh, I put that video up as well because I thought it was extremely good and extremely important that we understand the kind of pushback we get on good bills from people who kind of come from a bad place. Yeah, and speaking of a bad place, we're nominating Mr. Corvisi as our villain <laughs> of the week. 
Okay. Mr. Corvisi is always there. Whenever you have your good bill and you need someone to play devil's advocate, Arthur Corvisi is your guy. Yeah. Well, Doc Corvisi never fails to have a bad take on good bills. He's um, an interesting guy. I think he's, I mean, I think Doc Corvisi is interesting because I think he's a true believer too. He's not a guy who comes at this from a point of view of he just wants to be a monster. He really believes that what he's saying is right. And that probably makes him much more dangerous. So, yeah, he's very, uh, very confident in his convictions yeah. and most of them are wrong for example <laughs> i emailed him many years ago and said uh why do you why are you why are you against legalizing marijuana in the state all the surrounding states are doing it they're all getting the tax revenue people are smoking marijuana buddy in rhode island whether yeah. you believe it or not like they don't need your permission they're doing it okay so either you can make some money off of it or you can not make some money off of it but we don't need your permission to smoke weed right. and he wrote me back i'm not his constituent but he wrote me back anyway to his credit you know with some lollygagging paragraph about how pot will never pass in Rhode Island as long as I'm here. Marijuana will never ever be legal. You know, the gateway drug and all this nonsense. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people that smoke weed. And I don't know any that do anything else. Yeah, I don't so know any. Gateway, I don't know anybody who went from weed to heroin. Marijuana is a horrible gateway drug. Yeah, it doesn't even do the job, like, in terms of getting you to try other things. Right. You know, um, it's, it's just crazy. But um, that's the doctor for you. So congratulations, yeah. buddy. Um, that is our show for this week. Uh, if you have feedback about the show, good or bad, we always love to hear it. Write us at podcast at rifp.co. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher, among others. If you want to support our show, thank you very much. You can visit upriseri.com and click the donate button. Uh, tune into our sister podcast, Can We Fix It? with Maura Walsh and Jennifer Douglas. Fridays at 12 p.m. on Uprise RI for the latest news on politics, climate change, activism, and all the bills being introduced to the State House. Every single one. Follow Steve on Twitter, follow Uprise on Twitter, and visit upriseri.com. We'll keep you informed with all that stuff as these bills keep going. All right, we're Steve. going to continue to kick ass and take names. That's our job. Steve, just yeah, all the credit, man. Like, seriously, go to Steve's Twitter feed and just look at all the bills he posted. Like, he literally just, it's like hundreds and hundreds of bills. Over 1,400 bills were introduced. Actually, I mean, over 1,500 bills were introduced. My job is to retweet the really interesting ones for Uprise. <laughs> and even I can't stand doing this job because it takes so long. And Steve's the one posting them all. Like My job's like one quarter of what Steve's doing. And it's just amazing. So kudos to you, buddy. Well, no problem. Is I, I, I love my job. That's good. That's good. Um, you know, you want to love your job, and that makes you better at it. And yeah. I don't think anyone's going to argue that you're the hardest worker, hardest working reporter in your island. Um, so, guys, thanks so much for tuning to the show. Catch us next week, and we will see you then. Take care, everyone. <laughs>